Well, let's get into our Bible study after a video like that that fires us up. I love how it ends like we're praising him. And I love that because we've been talking about worship. We're in the midst of this worship is series as we go through the book of Exodus and we find out how God wants to be worshiped, how God is setting up a place, a sanctuary we learned last week and we'll read again this morning where his people can meet with him and worship him. So good, good stuff. So excited for it. Let's pray and we'll get into our Bible study this morning. Father, we, we come before you in Jesus' name, and Lord, I'm, I feel like I'm ready to jump out of my, my skin here, God. I'm so excited at the things that you've been revealing to me through your word. I love how you do that, God. I love how, how you can say, Jesus, you did say that these things that we read in, in our Bible, Father, in your word, they testify about you. They reveal you to us. And God, that is our prayer. That is our heart's cry this morning, that you would reveal yourself to us, Jesus, that we would see you. We'd see you in the splendor of holiness. We would see you in the beauty of your countenance. We'd see you in the mercy seat. We'd see you in the showbread. We'd see you in the lampstand. God, we want to see you. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd anoint my lips to teach your people your word. You'd anoint their ears to hear what you want to speak to your people. And Father, we lift all this up in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to tell you, we've got a a chunk of text in front of us this morning, and so the intro is going to be short. I want to keep it just as this. The, The title of the message you see is called, Worship is Beautiful. Right, and I chose beautiful because that's the that's the short, self-explanatory version of what worship really is. Right, the longer title is "Worship is the Splendor of Holiness," and you'd be thinking, "Well, that's that's a mouthful, right?" Now you know why I chose beautiful, but I like this splendor of holiness a lot more. When, When you see the things that we're going to see laid out by God, the reality in heaven, the pattern that He gives Moses for here on earth, you're gonna say that is indeed splendor. In holiness. But check this verse out. There's a first reference verse as we get started. This is where this idea comes from. Psalm 29, verse 1 and 2, David says this. He says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, three times you see in those two verses of Psalm 29, you see David use the word ascribe. And it means a sign, credit to the Lord, give glory where glory is due to the Lord and worship him in the splendor of holiness. And I love that. I hope that 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 just pulls your heart in and say, I want to know more because I wanted to know more as well. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning because... God has a lot more for us. So let's jump into the text. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. We talked about verse 8 last week. I know, but we're going to get a little momentum as we move into the new text this morning. So Exodus 25, verse 8 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Remember, God is speaking to Moses here. This is God speaking. Verse 9, According to all that I show you, That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings. Just so, he says, make it exactly as I show you. Just so, Moses, you shall make it. And they shall make me an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. 
and you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out, you shall overlay it and make on it a molding of gold all around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side, and you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, a whole lot of gold. 14, you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. Listen to this. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give to you. Now, stopping there for a few minutes. I know that's not even the the entirety of the ark of the covenant that God is instructing Moses to instruct the people to make for him and put in the sanctuary, right? We're we're just taking this a little bit more in in some smaller bite-sized chunks here. But let's just notice a few things about what we just read. Number one, I want you to catch this. We're going to make note of this later as we close. But notice the first thing God shows Moses as the pattern that he's supposed to follow when up on the mountain is what we call the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Presence, or simply the Ark of God. It's all speaking of the same thing, what we're seeing described to us right here in Exodus chapter 25. A very important piece, a very important furnishing that's going to go in the, the deepest, the holy of holies, the most holy place in the tabernacle. So hold on to that. We're going to talk a lot about this, but we want to start and say, well, well what is it? Right? What, what's going on here? Sometimes we hear the Ark of the Covenant. And we say, oh, it, it must be like a small boat like Noah's Ark. Or, or maybe it's, it's like what Yochaved, Moses' mom, made for him when she placed him in the Nile. Or she's saying, oh, it's a, it's a small little boat in the holy of holies. No, no it's not. Listen, the, the, the Hebrew word in the original language, the Hebrew word for Noah's Ark, the Hebrew word for the Ark that God, that, that Yochaved put Moses in, it's completely separate. It's not the same word at all to the Ark of the Covenant. In English, it's the same word, but in the Hebrew, it's totally different. There, there's no linguistic connection. A Hebrew hearer is not even thinking the same two things as we are. So I put that thought in your head, and I'm saying, take that thought out of your head, because that's not what is going on here. This Ark of the Covenant that God is instructing Moses to make, it, it's, a, it's essentially a box. It's a chest that is going to contain some things. Now listen very closely here. It is not ever going to contain God. Did you catch that? God will never, ever, ever be inside this box, right? He's going to be, we'll learn later, he's going to meet with the people above the Ark of the Covenant, the box, the mercy seat, the cherubim, and then the presence of God. God's never inside the box. We love, well, we shouldn't love. We we do in in the ironic sense. We love to try and put God in a box. Well, listen, don't do that. We can't put God in a box. He doesn't fit in any boxes. Even the box God designed was not ever to contain him. But it does represent his presence. It will be a place that that God will choose to meet his people above. And we'll see why that is and and make some more connections there. But that's what's going on here. It's it's an ark. It really, in, in, in layman's terms here, it's a rectangular box. That's what the bottom of the ark, what we just read, is a rectangular box. It's two and a half cubits in length, one and a half cubits wide, one and a half cubits tall. And you're thinking, well, what's a cubit? Well, that's a good question. A cubit is about the distance between the, the elbow 
toe and the tips of your fingers. So it's about 18 inches. It's about a foot and a half. So think about this. It's only about four feet long, two feet wide by two feet tall, right? There's no way God, the God of the universe, the God who can span the universe between his thumb and his index finger could ever fit inside this box. So don't think that. But it is something that's representing his presence. It's the first thing he tells his people to build. Now, just notice a couple other things. Notice that he tells them to put rings on the sides, two rings on each side in the four corners. He, he tells them to make poles that are going to be overlaid in gold, and they're going to be placed in, in those rings alongside both side, sides of the ark. And, and what we're seeing here is that this is to be the way the ark is carried from place to place. It's being designed by God for the priest to get underneath those poles lift up the ark, carry the burden on their shoulders from place to place. And you say, well, why would God need to do that? Well, remember, it's supposed to be portable. He's going to give them their instructions. They're going to set this up at Mount Sinai, and then they're going to make their way into the promised land. Wherever they camp, they set up the tabernacle in the center of their midst, and they're moving these pieces into place. So God is setting it up this way, but these poles, notice verse 15, it says they should never be taken off off. They're to be permanently fixed. They're to be in those rings at all times. Now, why is that? Because God wants the message to be clear. Don't ever think you can just touch it any other way. Don't ever think that the ark of the presence of God can ever be moved any other way, at least without consequence by his people. Now, what he's seeing here, what we're going to see a little bit later is we're, we see in 2 Samuel chapter 6, this is, a, this is where later in, in the history of, of Israel, later after this ark is built, you're going to see David wants to, to move the ark of the covenant up into Jerusalem. He's, he's defeated the Jebusites. They have Jerusalem. He wants to bring the Ark of God into Jerusalem, but he doesn't pay attention to the way that it's supposed to be carried. And so what do they do? He, he, he says, well, let's just throw it on the cart and have it be pulled by some oxen, right? That's what's happening in 2 Samuel chapter 6. The Ark of God supposed to be carried by the poles is just thrown on a cart with some oxen. And it says that the oxen stumbled and the, the cart maybe starts to wobble. The Ark looks like it's going to start to wobble. And a man named Uzzah is going to think, I can't let the, think about this, I can't let the ark of God fall. So he touches it. And as soon as he touches it, God strikes him dead. And it communicates several things. Number one, God doesn't need us to hold him up. God doesn't need us to keep him from falling. God is able to hold himself up. God is self-existing, the creator of all things. He doesn't need us. We need him. But number two was, was we can't touch the Ark of the Covenant. You can't touch the presence of God like that. God has made it clear. That's why the poles were never supposed to be moved. But Uzzah touches it, showing there is a right way and there is a wrong way, but there is no right way to do the wrong thing. So Uzzah is struck dead, and it just communicates the reverence, the holiness, the fear of the Lord. But it shows that the priests, even the priests who were sanctified, set apart, called by God, in the right lineage, they couldn't just touch the presence, the, the Ark of the Covenant, representing the presence of God, they had to carry it by the poles. But I just think about that. Over and over and over, we say God desires our obedience. God asks for our obedience. Loosely, if you could say God needs anything, which he, he needs nothing. But loosely, you could say what he wants most is, is just our obedience. 
just obey him, right? We, we say love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We talked about this a lot in previous chapters. But loving him is obeying him, right? God's love language is obedience. So when we try to do things our own way, when we try to do a way that seems right to us, that's when we get in trouble, just like trying to put the ark on the oxen cart. But the third thing I want to notice is very much in line with what we're just talking about here. Understand that this Ark of the Covenant from, from Exodus 25, or really since after it's built throughout the Old Testament, it's going to represent the presence of the God of Israel. Now, it's not going to be the God of Israel, and he's not going to be inside of it, but it's talking about where that Ark is. God has said, I will meet you there. And so it's going to very much be symbolic of the presence of God. And so as the people are going to be bringing the ark from different places, the priests get the privilege, the opportunity to lift that ark up on their shoulders and carry it from place to place. But just think about what literally, physically that visual image is. They are bearing it up. They're lifting up the ark of the presence of God. What? Above them. They're exalting the Lord above them. They're saying, God, you are the highest one in all of our nation. You are the one who deserves to be carried upon our shoulders. You're the Lord, right? And we've been talking about worship. That's a beautiful picture of worship. What is worship again? Whatever declares the great worth of God, right? Lifting him up is a great way to declare his great worth. And then you lift up the one who's the Lord of all. And so they're lifting. And so it's this picture, this beautiful picture, this visual thing saying, there goes the ark. And you're, you're not wanting to look at it too much, but you kind of want to take a peek because there's the ark that represents the presence of God high and lifted up, carried by the priest, those who are in the lineage to have the privilege to be able to do that. But it's, it's beautiful. It's worshipful. But let me ask you this. What doesn't look like worship? What's something that's like, well, that doesn't look like worship. How about just putting the ark on some oxen cart? So it's pulled behind some oxen while you are not lifting him up high over your head. Right? I don't know if you've ever taken a sleigh ride or, t- or, or maybe in a horse and, and carriage thing, right? They're eclectic. They kind of remind you of a time past. They're kind of fun. But listen, that view, I mean, that view's not fun. I mean, and the smell sometimes, the smell's kind of horrible, right? Nobody wants to stare at the backside of an oxen or a horse all day long for the whole trip, right? I mean, there better be some view elsewhere because that's not the place to be. But, but listen, all seriousness in this moment, think about that. God deserves to be lifted up. God deserves to be high over me. God is the Lord of all. He deserves to be front and center, not on the back burner of my life, not on some dusty shelf in my home, not being trailered behind everything I do while I lead my own life. He's the chief shepherd and overseer of my soul. He's my forerunner. So a worshipful heart says, I don't want God back there. I want to be back there. That's where I belong. God belongs front and center, leading me ahead, high and lifted up. That's what I want to do. And when you think about these priests who had the privilege of carrying the ark of God, the presence of God, wherever they go, I want you to know, Christians, you and I, that's our privilege today. Peter tells us, I put the verse in your study guide, Peter tells us that we are a holy generation, that we are a royal priesthood. We are these priests in this day to carry Jesus, the presence of God that dwells inside of us. Our body's a temple for the Holy Spirit, the presence of God dwelling inside of us. We get to carry him wherever we go. Wherever God leads us to go, there the presence of God that abides with us is. So let me ask you this, what are people seeing 
with the presence of God that dwells inside of you? Are they seeing God on an oxen cart being towed behind everything else in your life? Or are they seeing you shouldering the Lord in a sense, lifting him up saying, I want the name of Jesus to be exalted. I want the name of Jesus to be praised. As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. The Lord is Lord of all. Is that what people see? Because that's what God wants people to see. That's what God has done here. That's what he's setting up by these poles in this ark that are never supposed to be removed. Because that's the way God wants people to carry his presence into the different seasons, into the different dwelling places, into the different areas where his people all go. So just kind of note that. I think that's beautiful for us as as far as an application point. Verse 17, these instructions on this ark continue. Verse 17, he says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, a hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you and will speak with you from, notice that, above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So here, here comes the second half, the remaining portion of how God wants to instruct Moses to instruct the people to build this ark of the testimony. Please tune in for this. This part is really, really good and important for what we're talking about here, why this piece is listed first. So notice, after the box portion is done, the rings, the poles, all overlaid with gold because God is deserving of the splendor of holiness and gold, the the most precious of metals, showing God's deity as God and his purity, his holiness. So after the bottom is done, after God has instructed the testimony which which Moses is going to receive, he's going to come down the mountain with the two tablets, right? They're going to be the law of God. The law, remember, that the people have said, Lord, everything you say, we will obey. The law of which the people have made a covenant with God, sign in blood to obey. Remember all that. That's going to go inside, right? Bottom box, testimony inside. And then what happens is God says, there needs to be a lid, which is the appropriate exact dimensions to be able to cover everything that is below that box. And that lid is called the mercy seat, or it's an atonement cover, your Bible translation may say. But, but check this part out. This mercy seat made of one piece, it's made of solid gold, it's the, the perfect cover for the, the bottom of the ark, and on each end there is a cherub. There's cherubim on top of of that mercy seat. I want you to take a look at this picture. 
This is an artist rendition of what this ark may have looked like. Now, I don't know about the artistry on the side that you see. We're not told that. Maybe that was there. Maybe it wasn't. But you can definitely see some pieces that we know were there. We can see the poles. You can see the cherubim on top of the mercy seat. Now, little side note about those cherubim. Those cherubim, they're they're special angels mentioned almost a hundred times in the Old Testament. But the first place they're mentioned is Genesis chapter 3, when God places them there to guard the gate of the Garden of Eden, to guard Adam and Eve from going back and eating of the tree of the of the tree of life. So think about how powerful it is. The first place they're, they're guardians. They're guardians of something that is holy. They're not guardian angels per se, at least for as the way we think of them. But they're guardian angels for the Lord. They guard what is holy for the Lord, and that fits, especially when you see them here on the mercy seat with wings spread out. over over the top of the mercy seat, just like God said that they were going to be. Now, you want a fun little study. I want to encourage you to read Ezekiel chapter 1. Have some fun trying to understand all that's going on there. But as you go to Ezekiel chapter 10, you see that he was describing what a cherubim looked like, right? And it's fascinating. It's amazing. We get a great description of what they look like. But but just notice, that's, what's, that's what God wants etched, built, made on the top of this mercy seat. Wings stretching out, guarding what is holy. But then check this part faces looking towards the mercy seat. Not faces looking up. Why? Well, two reasons. Number one, because God's presence is going to manifest itself above the cherubim and not even the angels, not even the cherubim are going to gaze at the splendor of his holiness. They're going to look down in reverence to the Lord God Almighty. That, that psalm we opened up with, O heavenly beings, ascribe glory and honor to his name. Speaking of angels, they worship the Lord. They're the ones who say, Lord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, right? Their, their faces are down. But I think the second point too, remember what Peter says. Peter says that these angels desire to look into the gospel, the mercy, and the grace that God affords you and I in Christ. They long to look in that. And I think they're looking down because what are they looking into? They long to look at God's mercy. They long to look into God's grace, how he's able to forgive created beings who sin against him. You and I, human beings who can be found in Jesus and forgiven, they, they want to look into that. So they're looking down at the mercy seat, which is a picture of the gospel. But that's beautiful to me. This, this is amazing to me. And I just want to remind you, remember, remember what we read in verse 9. Moses says that he's seeing a pattern, or God says, I want you to make everything according to the pattern that you see, which means the pattern of the things that he's seeing, he's getting a glimpse into heaven, Moses is. He's looking into something real in heaven. And God is telling him, make a pattern of that for the worship that I want my people to engage in, in the tabernacle, the place of my dwelling. But try to see that because this is this has me so fired up. Look at some more verses. This is Psalm 99 verses 1 through 3. It says this, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion. He is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name for he is holy. Now we see he dwells here between the cherubim. Now I don't think this is talking about the tabernacle when he manifests his presence. He will do that between the cherubim. I think though this is talking about heaven. This is where God dwells. He dwells in a literal throne in heaven between two cherubim. That's what Moses is seeing. That's what is pictured on this mercy seat. 
Look at this next verse, Revelation 11, verse 19. It says, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. In Revelation chapter 11, after the, the, the seventh trumpet has sounded, John says, I see heaven opened up. I see the temple in heaven, right? In heaven. What does he say? The ark of God is there in heaven. Please remember that. Moses is seeing real life what's happening in heaven, and he's making a pattern of that. But in heaven, that means there's these cherubim, there's this mercy seat, there's this plan of God to show mercy to his people. In this tabernacle, that we're talking about and all of its furnishings. It communicates who God is, how God wants to be worshiped, how God has made a way for us to worship him. And listen, the greatest message of all is that mercy seat, is what's on top of that mercy seat, is what the mercy seat allows for God to be able to do. And what is it? It allows him to be merciful to you and I, to his people, I want you to see that it's the plan of God. This is God's own design. This is God's, this is the reality in heaven is to be merciful. Why would God know he needs to be merciful? Because he knows that we are sinners. He knows that we will not live up to his perfect righteous standard, that we're going to need a savior. He knows mercy has to triumph over judgment. Because if not, there are no survivors. All are judged. All are found guilty. And the wages of sin is death. All will die, perish, and spend all of eternity eternally separated from God in a place called hell. That's what God knows. But he's merciful. And so what does he do here? He tells them to design a mercy seat which is able to perfectly cover What's going to be inside of that ark? What is it? The law of God. The testimony, the proof that God has spoken to his people. That God has given us his law, his perfect law. And we know it's his because he gave it to us. It's in this ark. But on top of that is this mercy seat. But I I just want you to see this. I I want you to kind of see big picture here. God is going to set it up. We'll read this later in the law. God will set this up that, that there will be a day of atonement. So one time a year, the high priest can go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is going to be in the tabernacle and then in the temple that's going to replace it. One time a year, after that high priest has made a sacrifice for his own sin, he's able to take the blood of a bull into the Holy of Holies, dip his finger and put some of that blood on top of that mercy seat for the atonement of all the sins in, of all the people within the nation of Israel. God is going to be able to, to allow this, but I want you to visualize this scene. Inside this place, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, there's the Ark of the Covenant. Inside is the testimony of God's perfect law. The law he knows because he spoke it into existence and twice he etched it on stones because the first one got broken and so he did it again. But even that, God doesn't, doesn't forget what he said, right? He knows. But think about this scene. There is inside of that ark a standard that is so high that no human being can measure up. And there's the awareness that there's a day coming once a year where God is going to manifest his presence above that ark, above this ark. And when he comes, you're thinking he's going to see his perfect law. And he's going to see his perfect law. He's going to judge my life. He's going to see that I don't measure up. 
And if he sees that, I'm naked. I'm, I'm naked. I'm exposed. He knows that I'm a sinner, right? There's this fearful expectation that God knows, and one day every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess. And here's this moment, and you're thinking, I'm cooked, right? God knows his law. He's going to be right on top of it. And you're thinking, what am I going to do? There, there's nothing that I can do unless God does something right in the middle of it. Unless God permits there to be atonement on my behalf, if he just comes and sees the law, he sees that I'm a sinner, right? He sees that I haven't measured up. But if he's able to see something else, the propitiation, the blood of another, the innocent blood sacrificed on my behalf, then think about that. When God's presence comes down, the first thing he sees is not the law, but he sees the blood of another, He sees the covering of a blood sacrificed on my behalf and he's able to offer mercy. He's able to give me what I don't deserve, grace, right? All because he's setting something up here, a beautiful picture called atonement or propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfies the righteous wrath of God, and his justice against sinful disobedience. That's what propitiation means. And so he's setting it up. That's what the atonement seat is for. God making a way through the blood of another so his people will not face the judgment for breaking the law that he has spoken, that they're in covenant relationship with. God makes a way to show mercy. But we as human beings, we need to see that's exactly what we need. We need to come to the Lord and let him in Jesus be mercy seated to us because of Jesus' righteous blood. Please try to stay with me on this. I know this is kind of a lot of heady language and a lot of different things, but I'm praying just the Spirit of God is ministering to your heart and you're following me in this. But Jesus tells a beautiful parable about this in Luke chapter 18. Jesus says, two men come to the temple to pray. All right, they're coming to the temple to pray. Now, one is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. And the Pharisee shows up and he's going to pray this long, self-righteous, self-exalting prayer. Like, look at all the religious things that I do. Look at all these things that I'm about. He's coming ultimately in arrogance, saying, God, I don't need mercy. I want you to give me what I deserve because what I deserve... It it should be your favor anyway because of all that I've done. He doesn't see himself as breaking even the least of these commandments is guilty of breaking them all. So in an arrogant, prideful, self-righteous heart, he comes to the Lord and just thanks God for how great he is. Not how great God is, how great he is. And Jesus says that man leaves there not being justified. He will not be declared innocent and righteous because he's a prideful, arrogant, sinful man who doesn't come to the Lord and ask for mercy. But the other man is a tax collector. A, A man in this day who would have rebelled against his own country, betrayed, would have been hated amongst his people. It was saying he's a notorious sinner in the eyes of all these people. But this guy shows up in humility. He shows up before the Lord and understands he needs mercy. And what he says is this, the tax collector says this, Luke 18, 13. It says the tax collector shows up to the temple, but standing afar off would not so much as even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This man shows up to the temple. Remember, he's offering prayers. He knows the Ark of the Covenant is in the most holy place. The Ark of the Covenant has a mercy seat. 
And he's saying, God, be mercy seated to me. When you come and you see your perfect law, I'm telling you right now, Lord, not something you don't already know, but I haven't lived up. He says, forgive me a sinner. In, in the Greek, it literally means, forgive me the sinner. As if like, I am the picture of sin, God. Because if God is the picture of holiness, splendor in holiness, then anything less than him is sin. Anything less than a per- perfect standard is less than perfect. Which means if I have one sin in my life that has not been covered by the righteous blood of Jesus, I am a sinner. I need to be fully washed and cleansed. But he shows up here in this moment and he says, I need grace. I need mercy. He's directing his prayer to the Lord. And when Jesus says of this in the parable, he says, that man is going to leave justified. That man will leave declared innocent and righteous because he humbled himself before me, recognized that I sit on the mercy seat. I extend what he needs. Jesus is the one who is going to die on a cross, spill his blood for us. That blood in an altar, in a sense, is gonna be sprinkled on that mercy seat. So when God comes in judgment, he sees the propitiation that is Jesus dying in our place. He sees us covered by the blood of Jesus and no longer seeing our unrighteousness, but Jesus's righteousness that covers us. One more verse I want to show you. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul says, For he, God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What he's saying is Jesus is the atonement, the propitiation that was sent to satisfy the requirement that I couldn't satisfy. I can't live a perfect life. I, 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 we are sinners by, by our own admission, or we should be. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We couldn't live the life Jesus lived, so he lived the life for us. We didn't want to die the death that we deserve, so Jesus died for us. And then he rose again. But that's the gospel message, and it's all wrapped up in the mercy seat. It's all wrapped up in God wanting to be merciful. God wanting mercy to triumph over judgment. God wanting to save his people and keep them, bring them into right relationship with him. He knows he has to have a covering over the law because the law can't save. The law only convinces us that we are sinners. So just see that there's the gospel message right here in this Ark of the Covenant, right here in the first thing God shows in the message of the pattern that he's revealing to Moses up on this mountain, that I want you with me and I'm going to make a way so you can be apart from simply thinking that you can keep the law all on your own. It's beautiful. It's kind of complicated, but it's beautiful. I trust the Lord just, just ministering that to your heart. But I love that. That's what's being pictured of here. That's what the Ark of the Covenant is all about a place so God can be mercy seated towards all of his people, mercy seated towards all of us. Because without mercy, nobody gets saved. Without God's grace, nobody gets saved. Because apart from that, we don't measure up. So moving on here into some other articles that we'll talk about in chapter 25. Next, he says this, verse 23, you shall also make a table of acacia wood Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make it for a frame of a handbreadth all around, and you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. 
And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. So furnishing number two, after giving them the instructions how to make the Ark of the Covenant, he's now going to talk about the table for the showbread. And here's another picture of what this may have looked like. You, you can see even in the text and, and somewhat in the picture, there's some similarities between the Ark and the Covenant and the table for the showbread. No, they're both made of acacia wood. They're both covered with gold. There's a crown molding on top so things aren't sliding off. Both pieces have the rings and poles so they could be carried but notice here the the table the poles are not supposed to remain here all the time because these are going to be placed i'll show you in a minute in the holy place not the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant is but the holy place kind of an outer sanctuary there's going to be things that the priests are doing the poles are there all the time they're going to be tripping over those it's going to be a mess so so those are portable you can take those off well, let's make a couple more observations here. Just note, note some of these measurements. This table is not very big. I mean, I think our coffee tables are bigger than this table. It's about three foot long by about a foot and a half wide and less than three feet tall. That's, that's pretty small, really. And, and aren't you kind of thinking, I mean, we, we live in a culture that if something is going to be grand, it better be massive, right? It has to be massive. If something's going to be magnificent or significant of any kind, like make it big. Right? We want to see something with some girth. But I want you to know the whole tabernacle as a whole is not very big. The ark we read is not very big. The, the table here is not very big. And why is that? Because God is communicating that the magnificence isn't in a massive size. The magnificence is in the message that it brings and the one who promises to dwell in its midst. Right? The whole heart of why the tabernacle is so amazing is because God says he'll dwell there. Is that God manifests his presence there. And I don't care how big a building is. If God isn't there, it's just a building. And in turn, I don't care how small something is. If God's presence is there, it's the most magnificent, beautiful thing you'll ever see, you'll ever behold. Because God's the one who makes something magnificent. The message of the gospel is what makes something beautiful. Oh, how feet, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, right? God brings the beauty. So it doesn't need to be massive. But you may be wondering... Why does God want a table outside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle? And why is this table called the table for the showbread? And you're thinking, well, well, I mean, just in case God gets hungry, right? No. Well, just in case God might want a midnight snack. No. Just in case God needs to set out his own milk and cookies. Again, no, no, no. This isn't even for God. God's not going to eat this bread. This, this bread isn't for God's sustenance. Remember, God doesn't need us to feed him. God doesn't need us in order to survive. God doesn't need us to provide him his daily bread. It's the exact opposite on all of those. We have our existence because of him. We live and move and breathe and have our being because of him. He gives us our daily bread. We need him. We are to live our lives dependent upon him. And that's what this table symbolizes. If we read later, I put some verses in your study guide, you'll 
you'll see there's supposed to be 12 loaves placed on this table in the presence of God. And those 12 loaves represent the 12 tribes of Israel, showing them in a symbolic way that the 12 tribes of Israel, all of God's people, they're always before God's presence. They're just outside the veil where the, the Holy of Holies is, where the Ark of the Covenant is, but they're there in the presence of God. They're always before His face. They're always on His mind. They're, they're there to show God gives His providential care over them. They're there because God chose them. They're there because the Lord God is their God and they are His people. And as you continue to read through the law, you'll read that every single day, that, or every single week, the day before the Sabbath, new bread is baked, new bread is prepared. The old bread is taken off that table. That old bread is for Aaron, the high priest, and his sons, the, the family of the high priest. Their sustenance comes from the Lord. They're able to fellowship with the Lord in a sense. They're eating the bread that has been in God's presence for the past week, right? Showing God is, is in fellowship with his people. God is allowing his people to come near. He's still separate but there's also some nearness and approachability there if you come to him the right way. But that's what's going on. God cares for his people. God knows we need our daily bread. God loves us and knows us and watches over us. That's what this table for the showbread is all symbolizing here in this moment. Verse 31, the lampstand, it says, you shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with ornamental knob and a flower and so on for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in the front of it. And its wick trimmers and trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain." So the next piece God is showing is the lampstand. Here's what I want you to make next. And, and here's a picture of what this may have looked like. The, the golden lampstand is going to stand in the holy place opposite the table for the showbread. And have you ever seen a, a menorah? You've seen that, that six branch or seven branch. There's seven different lamps on this. That's, that's what we're seeing here. But we're going to see later that it's going to be the only source of light in this in this holy place. And I want you to think about it. I'll show you a picture a little later, but like, think about the way the tabernacle is going to be constructed. We'll learn later that that inner piece is linen made of goat's hair. And then you have other animal skins. And then on the outside, you have those, those badger skins or those cow, sea cow skins or porpoise skins, whatever they were. We don't even know, but they're waterproof. They're thick. But the point is, we're not told there's any windows. There's no way light is penetrating in through those things, which means the whole place is pitch black unless 
God brings a lampstand. And what does that communicate about the Lord? What does God have a history of doing? Bringing light into places that are dark. Chasing darkness away by the power of his light. Illuminating things where there is no light. And that's what God is doing here. That's what this lampstand is going to represent. Not only light, but also life. Notice how God wants it to be formed like a tree. It branches out and there's flowers and blossoms and bulbs. It's symbolic of the light and the life that comes from God's presence. The illumination that comes deep within our very souls and permeates out every aspect of our being when we allow Jesus to sit on the throne of our hearts. When we invite Jesus to be Lord of all, he brings illumination into every aspect of our hearts. Some of those things are hard because you're like, ooh, I didn't know that that was kind of tough, right? Chasing away darkness. Other things, he's just bringing clarity and it's beautiful. But notice that it reminds me of Psalm 1, like like the person who plants their life next to the streams of water and grows and grows and grows and bears fruit in season and whose leaf doesn't wither, right? That's what this lampstand, it's light and it's life because that's exactly what it's like to be planted in God's presence. So notice that it's it's blooming and it's budding and it's producing fruit and, and they're ripening and all that comes from just walking in the presence of the Lord. But that's all how God wants to be worshipped. God wants to be worshipped in the light of the mercy that he's willing to extend to us. Right? We praise him for what he's done. He who's been forgiven much, like we have, can love much because he's shown us mercy and extended us grace. And then we can praise him because he gives us our daily bread. He provides for us not only the physical things that we need, but also every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then the light and the life that he gives us. When you think of all these different things, I want you to picture, that's what God is showing Moses in heaven. That's the reality in heaven. He's supposed to make this a pattern on earth. But isn't it, the, the whole thing, it's, it's the splendor of holiness. Worshiping God is absolutely beautiful, but it's beautiful in the splendor of holiness type of way. And I love that. That beats my heart. But I want to close out with this thought as as we try to look at this text that we've talked about, chapter 25, kind of verses 10 through 40 as a whole. I want you just to come back to the beginning of of God tells Moses, make a place for me to dwell, a sanctuary, a place where I'm going to meet you. And the first thing he tells Moses about is this Ark of the Covenant. That's the first thing he shows him. Now, I don't know if that caught your attention as you were going through this, but that's that's kind of the way my mind works. I say, why, Lord? Why the Ark? Why talk about the Ark first? Right, this is in the most holy place. Or we'll look at this. I keep alluding to this. We will in a minute, I promise. But you have to go through all these other things to get to the most holy place in in your your tabernacle, in your temple. Why start with the ark? Out of all the other things, why start with the ark? Why start with a piece that goes in the innermost part before you've actually even told the people how to make the tent? Right? Why the ark? And here's the answer that I felt the Lord ministered to my heart is not only is it because this is the most important piece, but listen, that's where God wants us all to be. Where he starts here is where he wants it all to end when it's all said and done, all of us in the very literal presence of the Lord. Brought into the place because of the atonement made on the mercy seat. Brought into the place where we can be in his presence, in his holy presence. God is showing Moses first, this is my end game. 
for all of those who will follow me, for all of those who will trust me, for all those who will abide. I want to bring you as far in as in can be. I want to bring you as deep as deep can cry out to. I want you with me in my very presence. And again, that too beats my heart because I want to be so near to the Lord that I can sense in my being everything that pertains to how awesome and holy he is. I want to be in a place where I don't only have to walk by faith anymore. I can actually see the off-shining of his radiant beauty. I can feel the warmth of him because I'm that near. That's what I want. And that's what this picture is. All of this is showing this is how God wants to be worshipped. And that does, that just totally just beats my heart and draws me in. As we look at this picture now, I want you just to see, I've been alluding to this all study. I probably should have showed you this beforehand, but, but here's the tabernacle. This first picture, it, it's just a sketch. It's a real basic sketch. But what it shows is that's the way it's going to be laid out. There's some of the different pieces that we're going to see as we study through this. But look at this next picture. This is the diagram. This is just the basic order of the things that God is laying out. But what I by showing us the ark first, God is showing Moses that he is able to take him all the way in to the most holy place, past the brazen altar, past the outer courts, past the holy place, past the table of showbread and the lampstand, beyond the veil, into the holy of holies. That's where God has taken Moses. And that's where God wants to take all of us. That's where Jesus wants to lead us into the throne of mercy. We have a high priest, the book of Hebrews says, who's able to take us in to the Holy of Holies, to this place where we've just caught a glimpse of this morning. But the whole heart of this has been worship. Worship is how we get into that place. Worship in in the light of God's beauty, in the splendor of his holiness, in lifting him up, in making sure his name is to be exalted, in going low, in humility, recognizing the mercy seat. It all ties together. But to bring us into that place of just sure confidence in Christ that we can be there because of what he's done for us. And in that place, you see that taste is just not good enough. Or you see, you see that you receive the mercy and the grace in our time of need, whatever that case may be. I want that to be a place that we often frequently attend. We, we make our, our home there because that's where God wants to minister to our very souls. Moses up on this mountain is able to receive everything that God wants to show him. And Christians, I believe God wants to show us the same things. I believe as we have hearts of worship, live lives of worship, come before him in that capacity, knowing he's mercy seated for us, he will grow us in the wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Do we want to be there? I want us to be there. As we close out with a time of worship and singing about just the greatness of God, please try to be imagining some of these things in in their splendor, in their glory. And even what Moses is describing here, it's, it's just a pattern. It pales into comparison of how amazing it's going to be. But I want hearts that long for that. If you hear some of this, I hope you long to be in that. I long to be in the presence of God like this. But while we aren't there yet physically, literally, we are very much able to engage in that in a communion capacity spiritually. So let's do that as we worship the Lord in spirit and truth and close out our time together. Father, we come before you, Lord God, and some of these things, Father, they're, they're too lofty for my simple mind to fully be able to comprehend. Father, Father, all I know is that you're worthy. All I know is that I want to ascribe 
everything good, everything praiseworthy to your name. It all belongs to you. To you be the glory. And Father, I want to live a life of praise. I want to live a life of worship. I want to live a life that is showing the great worth that you are to me. Father, you are everything. And that you are the Lord of all. Father, I'm so grateful. We are so grateful that you have set on that mercy seat for us, that you have accepted blood, innocent blood, Jesus' blood on our behalf. Father, we just want to commune with you. We want to know you more. We want to be more like you. We want to represent you as we live lives of worship to you. So, Father, just meet us in this place. Meet us right where we're at. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. You do what only you can do. Holy Spirit, just continue the work that you've begun in our hearts. Continue to connect dots and reveal Jesus to us. Reveal Jesus through us. We pray all of this together in Jesus' name. Amen.